The first thing you can do is pray that my voice will make it through the next, through this morning. No, I'm serious. <laughs> okay, um, this morning we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. We've been working our way through a series called One Another. And so we're going to look at those two verses from chapter 10. Three things you should know as we get started as I step through things. This will be the longest introduction in the history of history, but we'll get to our verses. So um, three things we're going to talk about. What is the context of the verses that we're studying within the letter of Hebrews, first of all, and then within the culture at the time the letter was written, and then within chapter 10 of the letter itself. All those things will matter quite a bit. The second thing we'll talk about is at the end of verse 25, they talk about the day. And so I'll, I'll go over that because people will be curious. And then finally, we'll talk about the church. What is the church? And that's what we're going to start with in the very beginning. So before we get going, um, this is a tough day with Brent and everything. So let's just pray that God speaks to this guy up here and that we all go home knowing more about what God wants from us, okay? Father, thank you so much for being here today, being with us and guiding us and um, everything that we know you're going to do for Brent and Sharon and uh, the family. We, we trust you, Lord. We don't always understand, but we trust you. And I, I think about the verses that you've given me today, and these people were called to trust in you in some extremely difficult circumstances. And a lot of us face the same thing even now. So God, help us to learn today to trust you always. And may you get glory from it. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what is the context of the verses we're studying? So the letter to Hebrews, first of all, you may notice it doesn't say who wrote the letter. No one really knows who wrote the letter. But it was written to Jews who had been saved, but were, were struggling to, to, to stay there you have to understand, Judaism or the, the law would, had been around for 1,400 years. And they all followed the law. And that was, it was just so ingrained in their lives that it was very obviously difficult for them to leave. And so that's such a huge background as you consider this, okay? 1,400 years of, of, of life in this certain way. It was written to the church also. It was written to us. The letter was written to us because we will face different situations. But as I said, the law was given to Moses. It was around 1,400 B.C. Um, and you just got a picture in your mind, your, your, your family saying, so you've got this new thing here, 1,400 years, and you're telling me you're right and we're wrong. And all the pressure, that wasn't the only thing that was going on. To live in that society, the, the, the Jewish society, the temple was everything. It was everything. Everything revolved around the temple. And so what the Pharisees said was, if you follow what they called the way, if you left behind the law and you started following Jesus Christ and his apostles, you were basically excommunicated. You were kicked out. And it wasn't just that you couldn't go to church there. There was the economy was involved. Like I said, family would disown you. It was, you were just putting yourself out in the middle of nowhere. You had nothing. You had absolutely nothing. So to commit to this was a huge deal. I mean, it was uprooting everything you knew your whole life and going with this new way. But the Holy Spirit had convicted these people. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Messiah and showed them through the scriptures that he is the Messiah. Nonetheless, everything that comes on you says, no, that's not the way to do it. Um, it's always interesting to me. Um, in John chapter 9, 22, we get this idea of what was going on there. It says about this blind guy that Jesus had healed. It said his parents said these things like, hey, talk to him, don't talk to us. And they said it because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so you're, you're all alone, as I said. In our own text, in chapter 10, after our section of Hebrews, it says this. And this is the writer of Hebrews telling these people, please don't leave, please don't go back. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's incredible. Think about it. Someone came to you and said, okay, I know you're a Christian, but here's the law. You know, we're taking everything from you. Would you stick with it? Would you follow the path Jesus has set you on? That's what they were facing along, as, as I said, with their family pressure and everything. So we really can't put into words how extreme this was, how this crucible that they were in, all right? Um, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 say this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Stephen was kind of the pastor. You might say he was a bishop then, and he had been stoned to death. So devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. Think about a neighborhood, okay? House after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Satan was hard at work trying to convince these new converts to leave Jesus and leave the law because that can't save them. That's his goal, is to separate you from Jesus Christ because that's the only way you can be saved. And so he did that. Um, the arguments were probably rolling around in their heads. You know, well, mom and dad make a good point. This has been a long time, 1,400 years. So they were wearing down. But here, a lot of people get worn down in their lives, in our walk with Christ. So here's a verse from, from or two couple of verses from Matthew chapter 4 that I, I kind of want you to remember. They're up on the screen. This is when Jesus was in the desert being tempted. And there's an analogy here to the people in, in, in the book of Hebrews, okay? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came. Does that sound familiar? I'm so tired. You got little kids at home and you can't sleep, or your job is causing you stress or there's illness in your family, or whatever it is, and you start to wear down, and when you're wearing down, who shows up, right? Satan starts whispering in your ear, that's what was happening with these people. But, as we will see, we're going to look at all of chapter 10 in a few minutes, there's no excuse for it. There is no excuse with God. And so the author won't just build his case as we go through chapter 10. He will hold it up, and he will say, based on this, You've got to stay here. Based on this, Judaism is wrong. And so, like I said, we will see that. That is the context, then, of what we're studying today. Um, in a few minutes, we will discuss the context of our text within chapter 10, because that's even more important. If you need caffeine, go get it now, because you need to be back to hear that part. And judging by the quietness, you may need the caffeine. So whatever you need to do, I don't think the cafe is open. So go down the street, hurry back, all right? Okay, so we talked about the context of the verses the day. Everybody wants to know about the day. As you see the day approaching, what is the day? Turn back to chapter 9, if you've got your Bible open. Look at the end of chapter 9, because there's your answer. Verses 27 and 28. It says, Just as it is appointed for man once to die, or to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So that's the day. That is the day. That is the second coming of Christ. We are what? Uh, how many days in November? We're about 20, 30-some days from, you know, you know what happens, right? December 25th. All right, are you ready? Are you done? We are going to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what we do every year. This situation here is the second coming. So he will be here on Christmas as we celebrate, and then he will come back. And everybody wants to know, when will that happen? I'm going to tell you inexplicably, no one on earth knows when that will take place. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. If IU had beaten Ohio State, we might be a little nervous, but they didn't. No one knows when Jesus is coming. Don't go buy the book for 1999 of Amazon.com from someone who says, I can tell you when Jesus is coming back. Nobody knows, all right? With that in mind, the early church thought it would be in their lifetimes, but it wasn't. Well, why not? Let's ask Peter, and this is from 2 Peter. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. 
He's patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's not slow. He, so look at a thousand years. If a thousand years is a day to God, then in the Old Testament, he waited about a day and a half between when he gave Moses the law and when Jesus came to earth. And now, so far, he's waited a couple more days before Jesus comes back. But we need to remember that the world calls it ancient history. And the world says the Bible is outdated and the Bible doesn't matter and Jesus hasn't shown up. And, and that's ridiculous, all right? Well, Second Peter again, he says this. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. This is Second Peter. This is Peter. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, you got to take this to heart. That scoffers will come in the last days. I'm going to stop there. The last days began when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. All right? So there's not some time frame that we're looking at. That's when the last days began. Okay? All right. They will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That's what's driving them. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There will always be scoffers. There will always be people saying it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. Okay? We don't know when, but it will happen. Peter addressed the scoffers as well. He said this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Um, verse 25 of chapter, of chapter 10 that we're looking at says to make sure we meet together and encourage one another. Why? And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not that we're more worried about it. We should approach every day as if tomorrow is the last day. I'm going to get into what the church is in a few minutes, but we should keep witnessing, keep studying, keep being faithful to God. And he says all the more as you see the day appearing or, or approaching. That's why you don't know. Be faithful to God all the time. Peter also expresses that idea in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said this, Since all, things are due, all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to live in, or to, excuse me, ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and this is the whole point of the whole thing, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That is, that's all you need to know about the day. Keep loving one another. Keep honoring God with your lives. It is the second coming of Christ. I, I would say this. Be aware of it. Don't be worried about it. Don't let it consume you. All right? It's, it's not where we're supposed to live. God has given us all this information. But remember, we are to live for him every day. Okay, moving on then. What is the church? And I'm probably going to camp out here longer than anything else this morning. I'm going to ask two questions kind of of myself. One is, what is the church? The other question is, how closely does Jesus Christ identify with his church? These things are very important. The church for us, I'm using an analogy, many, many, many years ago, my family and I went to Colorado, and we decided to go whitewater rafting. And so we took the rookie trip, you know, so we'd get killed. But there were still dangerous situations along the way. And the guy that was heading the thing up would say, okay, and then when we do this, whatever you do, make sure you do this or don't do that. And, and then when we do this, like, make sure you do this. And whatever you do, blah, blah, blah. And so he kept saying that. But the thing that I remember the most was we got in the raft and we pushed off and he's like, oh, and he goes, no matter what happens, don't let go of your paddle. And he said, anything, no matter what, at all times, hang on to your paddle and never let go of your paddle. So me, me and me, I was like, okay, I, I get that. You need your paddle, but what's the big deal? And he goes, well, if you lose your paddle, you have to pay for it. And I was like, okay, I can kind of understand that. It wasn't what I expected, but I, I was like, okay, I can get that. Well, listen, when it comes to the church, don't let go of the church. The paddle is not going to save my life. The church will. Hang on to the church no matter what happens in your life. 
You are a part of the church. Do not let go of the church. I can't express that enough, and I don't think we talk about it a lot, but it's the truth. Whatever you do, no matter what happens, do not let go of the church. The church is everything. When it comes to your walk with God, you're, you're, that's your life. The church is your life. It's, it's your everything. If you were a Christian, you need the church like you need air. And a lot of people don't see that, don't, don't get that. Next, next Sunday is November 29th. Many, many, many years ago on November 29th, I was putting up Christmas lights. I came crashing down to earth. I suffered a compound fracture of my lower left leg. It was not good. Ten days in the hospital, lots of time off work. Guess who filled the void? Guess who brought dinners to my family? Guess who took my kids to school? Little things like that. Guess who came and visited me in the hospital? It was the church. It was this church. They filled that void. The biggest thing, though, the biggest thing of all, guess who prayed for me? My church prayed for me, and I knew they were going to pray for me. And I told somebody that I used to lay in that hospital bed, and I would say, Lord, keep everybody at Gray Road on the straight and narrow because I don't want their prayers to be hindered because I need their prayers. It's all about me. It's like, Lord, please. I knew they were praying for me. And when you're in a crisis, beyond anything else, you need prayer. So if you're not attached to a church, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but if you're not a part of a church, you are on your own. If you were on a desert island or any kind of island and there weren't temptations around you, that might be one thing, but you're not. If you live in our nation, in this culture, in this time, and you are by yourself, you're going to be attacked from every direction. So I don't know where the camera is. Get to church, all right? I mean, I understand people right now with this pandemic, some people it makes sense to stay home. It's wise. But what happens is we, we get tired. I mean, when we were shut down, did you ever feel at all like, hey, I like giving up, getting up at 10.20 and coming down in my sweats and watching the service? No, one, no, just me, right? Right. Your, your flesh gets in the way. Your flesh tries to take over and do that. But we can't let that happen. You've got to stick with the church. It is everything, all right? Okay, back on track. Jesus said he would build his church, and he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And from the very beginning, he proved that to be true because it's his church. The verse we just looked at in Acts chapter three, eight, uh, verse 3 was that all of chapter 8 there describes the persecution that, she, that came to the church. And it was awful. But chapter 9 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any, any of, uh, anyone belonging to the way, which I mentioned was Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Why? Because Saul hated the church. After his conversion, many, he became the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee who hated the church, became Paul the Apostle. And, and many years later, he was giving his basically testimony before a king. And he said this, this is Acts 26, and I want to step you through this. He said, I myself was convinced, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. This has always got me. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So I just showed you this verse from chapter 9 a second ago where Paul tried to go to Damascus to look for Christians, and that he's just, he talks about it right here in verse 12. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, he's talking to King Agrippa, he said, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me, not the church, me. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Just let me explain real quickly. A goad is like a spike, and they would put this collar on the, the oxen, and 
that's kind of set it on there, and if one of the oxen decided the day was over and tried to make a turn, the goad would convince him that no, that was not a good idea. So that's what a goad was. But really, it was, it was like this idiom that they used back in the day, and it was a phrase like, you're wasting your time. Nowadays, we would say, Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? You were beating your head against the wall. Okay, that's what, what Jesus, in essence, was saying to, to Saul. But that's what he was, gonna, he, what he was doing. He was going to go and do this because he hated the church so much. The church kept growing. The reason I kind of wanted to cover this this morning, and I know it's an aside, but here's Saul of Tarsus with everything he has in his body trying to kill the church of Jesus Christ. But he was convinced, it said. So, do you think if you're sincere in what you believe and you try to be a good person that you will go to heaven. And I asked that for this reason. Many years ago, I was teaching on a Wednesday night, and I thought, well, people come on Wednesday night, they all know their Bibles, and they know their theology perfectly. And some lady came up to me and was asking me something I don't remember, and it was very obvious. She had no idea how to be saved, none whatsoever. So I don't know who in this room is or isn't saved, but the majority of our population feels like if you're a sincere person, if you try to be good, you'll go to heaven. My friends, that is wrong. That is completely wrong. Look at verse 9 in chapter 26. Saul was convinced. He was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so in verse 12, we see that he went as far as Damascus to do this. Again, how sincere are you? All right, one more story for you. It, um, Mr. Stephen Smith, who is not here this morning, so I can say anything I want about him, he and Mr. Kurt Tyra, who is here this morning, they recently, more than once, journeyed to South Bend, Indiana, once, twice, yeah, whatever, okay. And Kurt's, they, they want to go watch the uh, Naval Academy take on Notre Dame in a football game. Kurt's son is, is in the Navy. Stephen, we don't know why he likes Notre Dame, but he does, so. <laughs> It's 136 miles up there. I don't think either one of those guys would walk 136 miles and back to watch the game, no matter how enthusiastic they were about their teams, right? It is 136 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem to Damascus. And Saul walked that far. And the text says he did it in case he might find some Christians and so he could bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem. That is maniacal hatred, is it not? I mean, that's, that's, that's way over the top, we might say. Anyone who believes anything besides the gospel, no matter how sincere, how convicted they are, and if you witness the people, you will run into people who are as, every bit as convicted about what they believe as what we just read about Saul. It will not get them to heaven. It will not get anyone to heaven. And you need to share the gospel, Okay? I'm going to kind of leave my notes for a minute. If, if, you, if you're still this Lone Ranger person, keep in mind, and you, and you don't like being under authority to a church, I think that's our culture. But remember, Jesus said in Ephesians 4, he said he assigned uh, prophets, apostles, teachers, shepherds, pastors for a reason. Well, if there was no reason, if you weren't in the church, why would he do that? Why would he, you wouldn't need that because you're not in, under anyone's authority. Later in Hebrews, it says, obey your leaders in the church. God assumes people are going to be in a church. And it is, like I said, it's for the whole reason of you need that support. Um, you know, I mean, with, with Brent's family, everyone's going to come around them. Everyone's going to come around. Now, I want to say something as an aside again. Um, I, I totally understand there are people here this morning who... You're hurting bad. Your church, you, you left. The, the church is in bad shape, and so you were here, and you feel like, you know, I tried to be faithful, and the house got blown away. The foundation is still there, and I'm hanging on to this foundation, which is the rock. You know, but I, I'm exposed to the elements, and, and that's very hard. I think the thing you need to remember when we go through that, times like that, and, and I don't think any of us can understand that, how painful that is. But... As difficult as it is, um, I thought about using this. I used this analogy a long time ago. I, I'll go ahead and do this now. This is going to be painful for some of you. Um, okay, I haven't done, I haven't played piano. Okay, if I went like this, 
Can you all hear me, by the way? I'm way back here. You like that? That's fun to do up here. That's rather painful, isn't it? Okay, but you know what? If I took these same notes here, oops, wrong ones, and I went like this, guess what? Those two notes are right in the middle of that chord. Right up here, same thing. My point is God knows what he's doing. My point is you live in this world right here, whatever it is, you're a part of that. Does that make sense? You don't see it now, but that's what God is doing, okay? Does that make sense? I, I, I say that. I'm not going through it. Don't let go of, it, of God. Don't let go. No matter what you're going through, Romans 8.28 is still true. Okay, Romans 8.28 says what? Anybody know? I hope you do. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Don't forget that. But you need the church. The church is going to be there for you. God, please, that's my prayer this morning, is that everyone understands you need the church. Desperately as Christians. Okay. Now, if you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you haven't already. And I, there's a, Nick, if you can get to that box that I put on there. We're going to look at the text, and I'll, I'll try to go quickly, but I want you to know something as we read this. The section that we're involved with, it's very important to know how this chapter comes together. This is all about the fact that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. And remember, these people are thinking of leaving Judaism. Okay, so somewhat quickly I'll work through this text, starting at verse 1. He says, For since the law it has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, and that's important, it can never make those perfect who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? He's talking about these sacrifices. Since the worshipers, having once been cleaned, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But... In these sacrifices that these priests were offering, there is a reminder of sins every year. Why? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, here's the key phrase, to take away sins. The, the blood of bulls and goats, those sacrifices could not do that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, when he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. So he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will of God's, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is so important. Once for all. The sacrifice that Jesus made covered everything. Verse 11, and every priest stands at his daily service. That's what they did. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And here we go. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Period. That is how sins are forgiven. Nothing else. So that's why I stopped this. I put that box up to show 1 to 18. Now, look at verses 19 through 25. He says, therefore, so he makes this statement saying, there is no longer any offering but this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, and he lists three things. He says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. Second thing, let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering, no matter what, for he who promised is faithful. And third, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and stir up one another to good works and, and not neglecting to meet together is the habit of, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the second section of this chapter. Okay, why do we need to do all the, those things? Because that's where we're going with our text. Why, Lord, do we need to do those things? And he explains in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, and I need to explain that, he means if we reject Jesus Christ. If you sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth which they had, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. No, the only thing that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be, the word is deserved, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Think about that if you're not a Christian and you think Jesus going to the cross was not that big a deal or shouldn't matter. It mattered greatly. And so the way God phrases is that you trampled underfoot the Son of God and you have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and you have outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then he basically says, don't do that. And he says, instead, recall the former days when you were enlightened. And he reminds them of what they've gone through. And I don't know who this might affect today, but maybe this is you. You endured at one time a hard struggle for, with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes you were partnered with those who were so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. And again, I mentioned this earlier, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew, you knew then, and you had your faith was, was in God, and these attacks coming, you, you fended them off. He says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And I just think this last sentence, we're going to stop at this verse, or the last two verses. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. He just mentioned confidence back there in verse 19. He said, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is to me tender and, and wonderful. He says, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you're not struggling with walking away from Jesus Christ. But let's face it, it's a hard walk. We live in very difficult times. The culture is against us and everything. When he talked about the promise of God, we have to keep our eyes on the prize at all times, right? Don't ever sway. And, and elsewhere in Hebrews, it talks about the sin that so easily entangles us. Put all that off. You know, we, we've got social unrest. We've got this election that's still up in the air. All these things going on, and, and they're important. But keep your eye on, where you're, on Jesus Christ. We're, we're here for, for God's glory, period. That's it. So how you deal with people around you and situations around, me, around you, the things that you say, the things you put on social media, all that matters. It matters greatly. But my main point is you keep, on, you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and don't look to this side, okay? So my point here with the boxes is this. If you look at the end of verse 18, he mentions where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. If you took out our section about encouragement, he would, you could go right into verse 26. He says, there's no longer any offering for sin in 18. And then he says, but if you go on sinning, if you reject all that, you know, this is what's going to happen. So why do I point that out? Because he says, these things are, are possible. Therefore, you look at verses 19 through 25, 
and you take these seriously. Today we're studying 24 and 25, but all that matters. All that's, you see how that worked? You see how yeah, when you take that out, the two halves come together again? So just keep that in mind. With all that in mind, again, he says, we need to encourage one another. We need to do these things. So now, that's the longest introduction in history, so let's actually look at the verses. But I felt like you needed to see that before we got to our verses. So he says this in verse 24, consider how to stir up one another. Consider, and I understand totally, when you look at the Bible and you look at, you know, you're looking for the main part, but don't pass over things. The word consider means deep thought. When he said, consider the lilies, consider, and he said, consider Jesus Christ elsewhere in scripture. God wants you to stop. He wants you to stop and think about these things. So here he says, consider how to stir up one another. And so you as a Christian, in this church especially, you sit, you invest time, okay? And you think about who is in this, in this room with you? Who is in your church? How can you, how can I be an encouragement to them? How can I stir them up? That's what he says. How do I stir them up? The whole idea of the word is really a, like kind of prodding someone. There's the stirring up part. It's like, get it, get moving. I mean, that's what you're trying to do. So that's what God is telling us in these verses. You sitting here today, you watching at home, how can I stir someone up in my church to love and good works? What can I do in my capacity as a Christian in this church? What can I do? And please don't blow that off. All right? Please give that consideration. And it doesn't mean do it once. It means all the time. You should always be thinking, what can I do? What can I do to stir up my brothers and sisters? And again, we, we live in this society that was, is very much about me, 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 me. But no, the church is not me, me, me. We are all in this together. You keep seeing that everywhere. And the church is the truth. So your brothers and sisters matter. They matter greatly. So you're going to stir these people up. How do I stir them up? Okay, think about that. Again, who are you? What, what are you good at? What do you like to do? Um, what do you know God wants you to do? And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But just be thinking about, okay, Lord, what can I do to stir someone up? Think about that. It says to acts of love, and that word love is agape. Agape basically is, I'll read your definition, um, but it's altruistic love. Okay, I'll just go ahead and read this for you. Agape is the love that was shown at Calvary. Thus, agape is God's love, and it's the love that God is. It's not human affection, but it's a divine love commanded by God. And as far as us, it's produced as fruit in the heart of the surrendered saint. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's self-sacrificial in nature, seeking the benefit of the one who is loved. A love which means death to self and defeat of sin. Since the essence of sin is what? Self-will, self-gratification. It's a love activated, this is difficult, by personal choice of our will. You make a decision. Agape is a decision you make. God says, I love this person, I will do it. Okay, it's not based on our feelings towards the person we're supposed to love. This is where church might just get a little bit more difficult. You know, he gets on my nerves, she gets on my nerves, whatever. And God says, I'm supposed to love them. You make a decision to love that person, right? That's what God calls on us to do. That is the love of God. That's what he wants us to do. Agape will, is really begins for many people at home. We're not just talking. The church is all of us. When you're at home, do you, do you show agape to the people in your home? Do you really? Are you self, is it about me? You know, or, or do you wake up in the morning and say, okay, God wants me to love my spouse, my kids, whomever, brothers and sisters, and it's all about them. We are called to do that by God. That's exactly what agape is. All right? So when he says to love and good works, we do it with our fellow church members, but we do it with our family as well. It's just something that we need to, to keep in mind. To, to good works, again, good works. What, what do people need? Look around, see, I mean, stir up people to love and good works. Get to know somebody. So much of this is an investment, okay? Invest yourself in the people around you. 
and find out who they are and find out what makes them tick and where they're hurting and what you can do. I hope this isn't a long list because this is what God wants us to do. But you keep these things in mind, okay? Moving forward from that, the big thing I think in this passage or these verses is meet with one another. Do not neglect the gathering of the brothers in some, some translations. Why? Again, because you need each other. We absolutely need each other. We have to be with each other the whole time. Um, you cannot neglect meeting together because, quote, I don't like this. That is not an excuse. You cannot say to God, and I don't mean to be mean-spirited about this, but, and, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here again, but you can't say to God, I know you commanded me to be in church. I know you commanded me to be in communion with the body of Christ, but you can't say that to him. He said, I know, Lord, but that's not what we say to the king. You cannot say to him, yes, you are my Lord and my God, and then stand in defiance of him. We cannot do that. The reason we go to our shut-ins is because when a person is physically unable to join the church, the church has to go to them. If you can join the church, you come to the church. What happens to us? And I'm going to pick at some people, and I don't know who I'm aiming at, so all's fair in love and war. What happens? You may have a legitimate reason for not showing up at church one day, but the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, right? And so, man, it's easy to stay home. It's easy to watch it on the internet. Okay, so um, I had a friend named Rich Utterback years ago. He taught a Sunday school, many years ago, taught a Sunday school class here. And he worked, I believe, for a nursing home. And they said, you're gonna start working Sundays. And he said, no, I'm not. And I remember him, teary-eyed man, standing in front of his class saying, I'll quit my job rather than not come to church. And he understood the value and the importance of church. What a coincidence they changed his hours. You know what I mean? But he, he made this commitment. All right, this will be even a deeper dig for some people. You have a, a child, a, a son or a daughter, and they play a certain sport. I see this in the working world everywhere, people who say they're Christians. They're not in church because their son or their daughter plays some sport, and there's a league, and the games are Sunday morning, right? Well, what do I do? I have to have my kid in this sport if they're going to get a scholarship to a Division I school when they're nine years old. I don't think that's true. You, you, let's put it this way. You would never go to your child and say, what would you like for dinner? And they say, I'd like two Reese's Cups and a Snickers bar and some Mountain Dew. Okay, dear. You would never do that. But when people say, well, I don't want to go to church or I want to play in this game. Okay, dear. You can't do that, right? Oh, I think you hit me in the mouth later, Okay. But that's important. You don't ask these questions of your kids. You lead your kids. It's tough, I get it, but that's what we're supposed to do. Train up a child, train up a child, train up a child in the way you should go. That's what we do. We are the parents. So keep that in mind as well. Okay, but don't, do not neglect when we get together at all. It's just something you can't do. Um, moving on from there, encourage one another, and this is where I wanna end today, okay? Encourage one another. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what this, when I put that box up there, that was the point. That section there is about encouraging one another. We, God is calling on us to do this. And so we've got to do that. How do you do it? And this is how I'm going to end today. There are a million ways to do this, but I wanted to point out some that I thought were biblical and would lead you there. Nick, if you want to go to, to that number one part near the, the back. So we pray. That's the main thing you could do. I talked about when I got hurt. You pray. You pray for other believers. That's the first and most important thing you can do. Second, though, be an example. Be involved in the church. If you can be involved in a growth group, get involved in a growth group. Is it difficult to go out on Wednesday nights or whatever? I understand that. But that is fellowship, and we need that. That's what God has called, has called on us to do. So be an example to the people around you. Share the word, share the word of God. This is so important. Sit down with somebody and read the Bible. I'll probably mention that again. Sit down with somebody and just read through the Bible. If you have the ability to teach, there, there is nothing in the world like one-on-one -on -one discipleship. No, I mean, some of my friends have heard me say about 
here, I mean, I'm an elder, I teach, and I'm doing this this morning, and I have a habit of saying, and I know this is wrong, I have a habit of saying, such and such picks up somebody and brings them to church because they can't do it on their own, and I say, that's real ministry. Well, this is real ministry, too. I totally get that, but invest in someone's life. They're there. I, I can't tell you how exhilarating that is to sit down with somebody, because when you start reading the word, God is with you, and, it, and it's beautiful things happen. Many, many years ago, um, gosh, a long time ago now, that's horrible, I was teaching, and my class was growing, and, and looking back, I was kind of, you know, I thought, well, I'm pretty good at this, or whatever, and so we had an elective, and they assigned this elective to me, and three people showed up, and I just laughed, because like, okay, Lord, I get it, you know, I thought it was pretty hot stuff. Well, there were three ladies, one of them never came back after the first week, and the, but the two ladies who stayed had been in the church forever, decades. But we would go through our lesson, our, what our elective was, very dutifully. And as soon as we got done, they would start asking questions about the Bible that they would never have asked in a class. And you're, you're either on one side or the other of that. You're in a class, it's like, well, I'm in ministry. I can't ask what that means. You know, if you sit down one-on-one -on -one with the person and you explain it, and if you don't know, you say, I don't know, let's go look it up. Do that. Invest your life in another person. Again, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. So share the word. Another thing, share and bear one another's burdens. Do this. People are hurting. Pray for them. Go up to them and let, your, let you, them know you're praying for them. There are people in our church who are hurting beyond what you can possibly believe. Horrible things going on. Meet with someone. What can I do? What can I do besides pray? Here's what I'll do for you. Here's what I'll do. But it takes time. It takes an investment of your life to do that. But you've got to do that. That is so important. Again, when I got hurt, the church was everywhere. And they carried us through that time. Last one. And this is a big deal. Share your life. Share your life what, have, what terrible thing have you been through? What terrible temptation do you face? And you don't want to tell anybody. But there's somebody out there who's sharing the same thing. What has God done in your life? I'm, I'm looking at, at people, and I've interviewed a bunch of people for membership, and I've heard your stories. People need to know what you went through. Go to someone and say, Hey, I heard you're going through this tough time. I went through the same thing, and this is what God did for me. The impact of that is stunning. Think about if, if you've been through a hard time, and someone does that for you, and they come and they say, I was there. Man, do you just want to grab them? Have you ever been in that situation? It's like when someone says, I went through the same thing. I just want to hug those people. It's like, don't leave. Don't leave. I have this connection with that person and God's the one who orchestrated it. We go through these trials in our lives for the, for the glory of God, but for the body of Christ. That, that I cannot express in words how much that means to do that. There are so many stories in this church of people who God took them through very difficult circumstances. Or maybe you're in them now. And there's somebody here probably who's been through something similar. I mean, when we've, we've, I've seen ladies lose, lose their husbands, and, and the other ladies come around, and I can't even mention names because I'll just cry. But um, there's a lady, well, okay, I won't cry. Steve Myers passed away. Maybe I will. Um, not too long ago. And he was a good friend of mine. And it was very difficult, obviously. But Monica, his wife, that was her best friend, but there's a lady in this church who I won't name. Um, she lost her husband several years ago. Okay. Why did God do that? Guess who's helping Monica now? Because she knows. She understands. I don't know what you've been through, but I know God can use it for his glory and for his church. Man, that's, that's so important that you... Put yourself out there. That's the words. I, you know, there's a risk there, isn't there? Boy, if I, if I put myself out, they'll know. 
they'll know. You know, well, God knows, and he can use that. You want to talk about that? I'll talk with you for hours. It is so important. Finally, share your time. Make a phone call. Invest in a friendship. I said, read the Bible. Say hello to somebody between Sunday school and church. Just share your time. Are, are you a crafty person? Take the time, make, make a little crafty thing, whatever little ladies do and stuff, and give one to somebody. Give a gift. I, I brought this Bible up here many, many years ago. Um, we didn't have a pastor, and I was chairman of the deacons, and it wasn't fun. It was difficult. And one Wednesday night, I came in, and my, my, my mailbox was this Bible. And this, and this person who said, I don't want to be named, but I know who you are now, so, but I won't say it out loud. He put this Bible in my mailbox, and this is a leather covering. I would never spend the money on something like that. But he had treated the leather, and it was beautiful. And it has this gold on it. And he talked about they don't make these anymore and how much he had invested in this Bible. And he, and he gave it to me. And I'm sitting there back in the back there reading this letter he wrote about thank you for your ministry. I mean, my wife cried. It was so beautiful. He invested money. He invested time. And here we are 15 years later, and this still means the world to me. Do that for someone. Do something for the body of Christ for the church. Encourage one another. Keep coming to church. Do not set aside the church for your own desires and things. Okay? Encourage one another, folks. That's what we do. I'm finished. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for being our God. Is it boggles in my mind to think that you are not ashamed to be called my God? Why you chose us, none of us will ever really be able to figure out, but we thank you. Help us, God, to honor you with our lives, to encourage others, to put you first. What a terrible thing to put other things in life in front of you. I thank you, God, for being with us today. I thank you now for the things you're going to do. I thank you for the things you've done. I thank you for this friend of mine who just recently was saved and baptized. God, we ask that you would heal Brent in some miraculous way. I pray for the people who have left their church and don't know what to do, don't know where to go, that you would make a way clear. And God, if you want them to be members of this church, we praise you. And if you want them somewhere else, we praise you. Help every person within the sound of my voice to honor you with their lives, to give you everything first. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.